Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, good morning. Y'all used to me to say howdy, aren't you? You're not used to me saying good morning. Um, well, it's good to see everybody. Today I'm continuing a sermon series on Christianity and the culture, and I just want to give you the, the preaching schedule just for the next couple months. What I plan on doing is finishing this series in November, and then we'll start in Advent, we'll start in Christmas, and then I'll, I'm going to pick up in January, I'm going to pick up the, the sermon series on the book of Hebrews with Melchizedek. All right, so I keep saying this about culture and Christianity. I keep saying how I want us to understand the culture better than the culture understands itself. And to to stand against the lies of the culture, we really don't need to keep up with everything that's going on around us, right? We really don't need to know everything um, because I want us to understand why certain things are happening, but we don't need to know about all the trends going on, I don't think. Uh, One of the things I was thinking, though, in that 2 Timothy 3 passage, I really want to get into that because... That passage where it says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves uh, what teachers to suit their own passions, right? And turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's our day, isn't it? That is, that is the day we live in now. And so this is the culture that we live in now, and so we want to understand things. But as I said, we don't need to understand every single trend going on. But I think the way, the best way to stand against the lies of the culture is to understand at least the basic truths of the faith. So our, our culture constantly says this, and I've said, said this in our series, things like follow your desires, follow your dreams. Um, for guys in our 50s, people don't tell me to follow my dreams anymore. We, we recently, I saw a movie recently that said, this guy was, said, follow your dreams, and he said, uh, he was about my age, and he said, guys in their 50s, they don't have dreams. They have nightmares and eczema. <laughs> That's... So, so our culture doesn't tell guys in their 50s to follow their dreams, but they are telling your, our, our young people, you know, to follow your desires. Follow your desires, no matter where they are, follow your desires. And, and uh, you, in fact, you are your desires. So our, and our culture also is constantly saying that the God of the Bible is bad, that Christianity is bad, that God is, is opposed to your freedom, uh, that Christianity is oppressive. Uh, those are all massive lies, and I've tried to show that. They're really wicked lies. The last time I preached, we talked about how God is not opposed to our freedom. In fact, Christ is the only one who can give us true freedom. Also, God is so good. He's so good and loving, and that's what I want to talk about today. We're going to talk about the Trinity. So today's sermon is called The Love of the Trinity, because in the Trinity, we get a glimpse of just how loving and glorious and good our God is. Uh, Pastor Daniel has recommended a book on the Trinity by Michael Reeves called The Lighting in the Trinity. I've I've mentioned it a few times in the emails. I would highly recommend anything Michael Reeves has written, especially on the Trinity. Uh, It's an excellent book. In fact, for the sermon today, I'm relying heavily on Michael Reeves' books on the Trinity because it's helped me so much. Also, I've come to see that I've been very negligent in teaching on the Trinity, and I want to fix that. So I plan to teach on the Trinity on more of a regular basis. All right, the Trinity, another, I'm going to give you sort of a brief kind of concept of the Trinity. I know it's difficult, but I want us to see how it's relevant. God is Trinity. In other words, another way of saying it is God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
But for most of us, honestly, when we start hearing about the Trinity, it just seems irrelevant to us. The the Trinity, it just seems like this idea of three persons in one God. It seems like something that theologians like to debate, but it has no real impact on us. Well, I've come to see that's just wrong. I now believe that God being triune, three persons in one God, I now believe that the Trinity makes a massive difference in how we understand God, especially when we think about God's love. And by the way, I would just say this, I would stay away, when you're talking about the Trinity, stay away from comparisons like ice, water, and vapor, have you ever heard that one, or, or uh, egg and egg, yolk, white, and shell, three and one, there you go, no, just stay away from all that, it's not helpful at all. Um, very briefly, and I would encourage you to, again, to do your own study on this, really, really study this, but I'm just going to make a few brief comments about the Trinity. The Trinity is not belief in three different gods. There's one God, one God. Also, the one God does not consist of three parts. God doesn't have parts, so so stay away from the word parts. God in his essence or his being is undivided. He's one God. Okay, so God's being, his essence is undivided. However, this one God exists in three persons. The three persons are not each part of God, as I said. Rather, each person in the Trinity is fully God. Each person in the Trinity is equally God. So each person in the Godhead, in other words, each person in the Godhead has all the attributes of God. So within God's one undivided being, there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Also, God is not one person who took on three different roles. There's a teaching called modalism that says that in the Old Testament, God is Father, In the Gospels, God is Jesus, and then after Pentecost, God is the Holy Spirit. That is a heresy called modalism. There have always been, it's not one one person showing up as different modes, it's three persons within the Godhead, okay? Three distinct persons. All right, those are some, some basic teachings about the Trinity, but what I really want us to understand today, I want you to do your own study on that. But what I really want us to understand today is how the Trinity, how an understanding of the Trinity shows that God is just overflowing with love and goodness. That's what I want us to see. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is overflowing with love and goodness. And we see this in both creation and salvation. I'll give you an example in creation. If you look at creation, if you have eyes to see creation, you see that that creation is just an outward expansion of God's abounding love. We've got the slide up there. That's a picture I took. I was at Walnut Grove High School. Shelby had a band thing, and I just turned around and took that. That's a sunset. Why is it that that we see this beauty in creation like this? It's all around us, right? This is the fall. This is my favorite time of the year when everything gets cool. The leaves are changing. We see things like this when the air gets drier. The the changing leaves in the fall. Snow-capped mountains. Shores, beaches, sunrises, sunsets, all of this beauty is, a, is, an, is an overflow of God's abounding love and goodness. That's what I want us to have eyes to see in creation. And if you think about it, all this beauty that we see in creation, it's just unnecessary. The world did not need to be beautiful. It could be gray and drab, right? It could be gray and drab and still support life. But the fact that the universe just explodes with beauty and goodness and love, this says a lot about our creator, the triune God. It it shows that God himself overflows with love and beauty. 
And you can see this in creation. All right, I want us to think about this, okay? This is a tough question, but I want you to, to, to ponder this. Before God created the universe, before the triune God created the universe, what was he doing? It may seem like a weird question, but, but before God created the universe, what was the triune God doing? Turn with me to John chapter 17, okay? We're going to look at John chapter 17. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And we get some real great insights when, when Jesus is speaking to the Father. John 17, first we're going to look at verse 5. John 17, verse 5, and Jesus is praying. And think about what Jesus says to the Father. here. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. Now listen. With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus says here that he's the son, and he's talking to the father, that he existed, that he existed before the world existed, and he shared the glory with the father. Okay, Jesus shares the glory with the father. In many places in scripture, it talks about how to God alone be the glory. Right? Like Psalm 115.1 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. To God alone be the glory. We're singing the glory of Patrick. And we're talking about how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we, we should give glory to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because each person in the Trinity is God. And here in John 17.5, Jesus says he shared the glory with the Father before the world existed, before the universe existed. There was a mutual sharing of glory among the Trinity. In other words, there was a mutual giving of honor and glory in the interpersonal relationships between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this had been occurring throughout eternity past. Now, is it difficult to get our brains wrapped around this? Yes, it is very difficult. But this is who our God is. Also, we know that the three persons in the Trinity were not only giving glory and honor to one another, they were loving one another. If you go down, look at John 17, look at verse 24. John 17, verse 24, Jesus is still praying to the Father, and look what he says. He says, Father, I desire that they also, he's talking about the disciples, that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, that's a wonderful promise, to see my glory, to see my glory, there it is again, that you have given me, because, now listen to this, because you loved me. So Jesus is saying, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus, who is God, who has been loved by the Father, who is God, Jesus has been loved by the Father before creation. There's a glory sharing among the Trinity, and there is an interpersonal love between the persons of the Trinity. God the Father has been eternally loving his Son. So God is eternally a Father, and he's been loving his Son throughout eternity. So before the universe was created, before anything was made, there was God, the triune God. And the three persons of the Trinity were in a relationship of giving honor to one another and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in a perfect and happy relationship of love. And this is what I want us to see, that love is an essential attribute of the triune God. Turn with me to 1 John. So we've been in John, let's go to another writing of John. 
1 John, near the back of the Bible, so if you go all the way to Revelation at the very end and turn left a few books, you get to 1 John. If we go to 1 John chapter 4, and again, what I want us to see is that love is this essential attribute of the triune God, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. Look at 1 John 4, verse 8. 1 John 4, verse 8. It says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In verse 16, John says it again. He uses that that phrase, God is love. So what John is saying here is that the essence of God is love. Here's what I mean by that. When I say essence, I mean God at his core, his being, is love. In other words, it has nothing to do with creation, and I'll explain why that's important. So again, think about God. Think about God before creation, okay? There's, there's nothing, there's no matter in, in the universe. It's, it's God. He's the only thing there. What attributes does he have? Is he all-powerful? Yes. Is he all-knowing? Yes. Is he all-glorious? Yes. So, Before creation, God's infinite power, his infinite knowledge, glory, these are all the essential attributes of God. Now, think about this. I remember Sinclair Ferguson saying this. Before God created the universe, was there any wrath in God? Think think closely about that. Before God created the universe, was there any wrath or judgment in God? No, there's no objects of wrath, right? There's no sin. There's no injustice when you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in other words, now, judgment and wrath comes later on, right, when, there's, when sin comes into the world. But in the Godhead himself, there is no wrath or judgment because there's no sin to judge within the Godhead. In other words, wrath is not an essential attribute of God, okay? So, the, so within the Trinity, what we have is we have all these characteristics, as I'm talking about, that are essential to God. Now, what about this? Before creation, was there love in God? Yes, there was. There was love before creation because, as I said, the three persons in the Godhead have always been in this relationship of love. That's what Jesus says in John 17. So again, in, in 1 John 4, 8, John says God is love. So we're saying that love is an essential attribute of God. God's very essence is love. His core being, even before creation, God is love. In other, this is why this is important, because God is not dependent on creation to be loving. God is not dependent on creation to be loving. So God in his essence is love. And what this means, I know this sounds philosophical, but it's actually really important. And Jonathan Edwards talked about this. That means even if you knew, if all you knew that God was love in his essence, you would know that God can't be just one person. Do you see that? God in his essence is love. He can't be just one person. Why? He can't be a single person God. Because if the love is the very essence of God, if love is his being, then he can't be one person. Because for there to be love, there has to be one who loves and there has to be an object of love. There has to be the lover and the beloved. So, so within a single person God, you can't have love as the essence of his being. Love requires at least two persons. So if you imagine, uh, imagine a single-person God. So let's imagine there's a single-person God, and a lot of religions have made up single-person gods, right? So imagine this God is the one who's the creator. He's brought everything into existence. Again, what was he like before he created the universe? 
You see what I'm saying? The single person God, he's all by himself. There's nothing else. What's his character? Could you say that his essence is love? His very being is love. He's completely alone throughout eternity past. The single person God is totally alone. Okay? The solitary God. He can't, in his essence, be loved because there's nothing to love. This means that love can't be an essential characteristic of a single person God. Love can't be a defining attribute of a single person God because there's no one for him to love. So a single person God is fundamentally inward directed. And you know what? When we look at the religions of the world, the made up religions of the world that have a single person God, that's what their gods look like. They're inherently inward directed. They're self-centered. And they have to be, right? And if a single person God creates, he creates because he's needy. He's deficient. That's what you find in the myths of the world with single person God, that either they're lonely or they want friends or they need slaves. That's what you find in these single person gods, in in these religions. I'll use Islam as an example. And Michael Reeves does a great job in his book talking about the single person God of Islam. Fundamentally, the God of Islam, Allah, is a single person God. And the Quran makes this very clear. The Quran makes it very clear that, that Allah is not the God of the Bible. So don't think that Allah is the same God of the Bible. They're, they're completely different. Allah is a single person God. He's not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because Allah is a single person God before creation, he had no one to love. He had nothing to love. That means love is not an essential characteristic of Allah because love requires someone to be loved. Love requires an object of love. Now, Islamic theologians have tried to figure out how you could say that Allah is essentially loving. And some of them have said this, that that Allah is loving. Now, think about this. Allah is loving because he loved his creation in advance before it even existed. But here's the problem with that. For Allah to be loving, that means he needs creation. You see that? He's dependent on creation for him to be loving. Without creation, Allah can't be loving. Because he's by himself. So in his essence, Allah is not loving. And what do we see in Islam? Is it a loving religion? No, it it matters. In other words, who your God is matters for how the people live. But that's not the way it is with the triune God of the Bible. The true and living God. The only real God in his very being, he's love. If you look again at, at 1 John, let's look at 1 John 4, 8 again. It says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, here God refers to God the Father, and he's love. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, and this is describing the Father's love. In this, the love of God, the love of the Father, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's saying this, that God the Father is love. In his essence, he's love. That means to be the Father, it means to love. He wouldn't be the Father if he weren't loving. And how was the Father's love made manifest among us? In other words, how was the Father's love revealed among humanity? Look at verses 9 and 10 again. It says, the Father shows his love... By sending his son into the world. 
the Father gives his son. He gives his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means the Father sent his son to die for us as a sacrifice, as a substitute. I talked about that in the Exodus, that Jesus is the true Passover lamb who died in the place of his people. So Jesus was sent by the Father to die the death that we deserved to be the propitiation for our sins. That's what that means. And he did this, the Father did this out of love. Also, if you look in verses 9 and 10, it says God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That we might live. That we might have eternal life through him, through Jesus, through our relationship with him, through our union with him. That's how we receive life. Now, here's what's beautiful about this. We see just in this passage that the father not only gives his son in love, he gives us eternal life. The father loves us and he shows this by giving. He gives his own son and he gives us eternal life. So the father is overflowing with goodness and love and it's manifested in his giving. Our God is always giving. He's always reaching out to us in love. You don't have to turn there, but you, you know the same thing in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. The father so loved the world. What did he do? He gave. He gave. He gave his only son. The Father is giving. He's always giving, and he's doing this in love. So God's love is a self-giving love. It's a sacrificial love. He's always reaching out in love. And what about the Son, the Lord Jesus? Did Jesus come into the world unwillingly? Was Jesus angry about coming into the world and being the Savior? No, the Son rejoices to do this. Jesus says that he loves doing the will of his Father. He loves pleasing the Father. And even when he went to the cross, out of love for his Father and his love for us, in Hebrews 12 too, it says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. It was a joy for him to save us. So Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and he did that willingly. He did that out of love for us. So God the Father is abounding in love. He's constantly giving. He comes toward us and God, the son, the Lord Jesus, he's overflowing and abounding with love and his love is self-giving. He comes to us in love. One of the pictures you often see in the Bible of God's abounding love is God is a fountain. God's love is seen as a fountain. His love is just overflowing and abounding and reaching out to us. A fountain has water that just keeps pouring out. It overflows constantly. This is who our triune God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our God doesn't just give us a few drops of life-giving water. His life-giving water, his love, abounds. So again, this is the essence of his being. He's overflowing with love. I'm going to reference some passages, and actually when I talk to Providence Christian School, I reference these same passages. I would encourage you to look at them. We're not going to examine them closely, but just this idea of God being an overflowing fountain. This is Isaiah 50, in Isaiah 55, One to three, the Puritans were in Isaiah 55 all the time. And it says, God God says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. So Isaiah 55, God God says, come to me, the fountain. And he says, that your soul may live. So the triune God is the source of this life-giving and soul-satisfying water. God is like a fountain overflowing with love. In Jeremiah 2.13, God says, he's the fountain of living waters. So God's the fountain that brings us spiritual life and joy and love. 
Ezekiel 47 is another one. I'd encourage you to study that. It's about God's water going forth from the temple. It's like he's a fountain again. In John 7, 37 and 39, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now this is what's cool about this. John says, now this Jesus said about the Spirit. So Jesus says that he will send the Holy Spirit to give life. This is so wonderful. Because think about it. As we've said, Jesus not only gives himself because of his love, he lays down his life for us because of his love. He also sends the Holy Spirit to us. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, he gives us spiritual life. And he does this because he loves us. So we see the Father is self-giving out of love. The Son is self-giving out of his love for us. And the Holy Spirit is self-giving out of his love for us. So again, this is the Trinity. The Trinity is an overflowing fountain of love. Abounding and expanding and reaching out with his life-giving water. Our triune God just keeps giving and giving, abounding and overflowing with self-giving. And the motivation is always love. And that's what I want for us to see as a church, just this abounding love of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He reaches out toward us. He comes to us. He doesn't wait on us to come to him. He doesn't wait on us to get our act together, to clean ourselves up. He takes the initiative. God is always outward focused, self-giving, and reaching out toward us in love despite our sinfulness, despite our rebellion. Now, I want to pause and explain something. This is a sermon series on Christianity and the culture, right? And I'm talking about the Trinity. Why are you preaching on the Trinity and Christianity and culture? If we put up the slide, we have the one for culture. We've looked at this before. One of the things we see is that in ourself, we naturally want to please ourselves. We're inward directed. We're inward focused. We talk about self-love and self-care. We want to bring happiness to us. Everything's inward directed. It's all pulled toward me. And when everybody does this, what, you get a bunch of individuals who are all trying to please self. And this leads to conflict and fighting. That's why we got the little explosions all around. Because everybody's fighting all the time trying to please self. Right? Because everybody's fighting for their own happiness in our culture. And we even think, I've got God above it, even, we even think that we're in competition with God. Because we think that he has stuff that we want and we're in conflict with him. Okay, he, he won't give us or he's grudging to give us things. So again, everything is inward directed. It's all towards self. I don't want us to live that way because frankly, it leads to misery and conflict. If we put up the slide called Christianity, we see again that it's, it's outward directed. I've got triune God above there. It's outward directed. We're called to live upward to God and outward to other people. We're called to, to live lives of love toward the Lord. It's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is what we're called to do. And this is why I'm talking about the Trinity, because the reason we do all this is because we are following the model of our triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God is constantly, as I said, reaching out in love, abounding in love, overflowing and reaching out. And because we are in union with God, through our relationship with Jesus Christ, we're called to join God's mission in reaching out in love to others. So God overflows and abounds in love, and we're called to join him in this mission of, being, of loving him and loving other people. This is who our triune God is, and we're called to be the same. So 
God's love goes forth and it expands as the gospel of Jesus Christ as is proclaimed. As the good news of God's abounding love is seen in the Father giving his son and Jesus giving himself, giving his life on the cross, in the Holy Spirit coming forth upon us all and giving us spiritual life. This is the gospel. And this is how the love of God abounds and overflows to us as sinners. And this is the way that the kingdom of God expands and abounds. This is how we can be a part of God's mission in the expansion of his love as shown forth in the gospel. But the only way that we can be rightly motivated, you can take the slide down, the the only way that we can be rightly motivated about being involved in God's mission, that has to begin with this. It has to begin with truly believing that our triune God is overflowing with love and goodness. Look, if you don't think God is overflowing with love and goodness, then you're not going to be excited to tell others about him, right? If you think being a Christian is boring and God just ain't that great, then mission or, 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 or serving, it just doesn't sound that great. It sounds like a boring obligation. But if you truly believe the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if you truly believe the Trinity is an overflowing fountain, constantly abounding and expanding and reaching out in love, if you believe that God is an overflowing fountain, splashing over us with his life-giving water and love, if you believe that, you're going to want to pray, right? It'll have consequence. You're going to want to pray. You're going to want to talk to your God constantly. You're going to want to hear from his, from his, his voice by reading his word. And you're going to want to talk to others about him. And I'm telling you, this is who our God is. Our triune God keeps overflowing with goodness and self-giving love. And that's what I want us to see in the Trinity. And I want us to be captivated by that. I want us to be captivated by the self-giving love of the triune God. I want us to constantly behold, to constantly see that the Trinity is so abounding in goodness and love and mercy that his love just overflows to us. It just splashes over us constantly. We sang Psalm 23 earlier. And actually, I like the words to that. I think it's Shane and Shane. I like the words to that because they make a little change in there. I don't know if you noticed this. But in Psalm 23, it says this, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Right? Shall follow me. In the song, it says right beside me. It's a little different. But that, that word, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, that's actually not a good translation. It's a bad translation of a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is radaf. Okay? Follow, if you say goodness and mercy shall follow me, it sounds like a puppy dog, like follow me around, but it never gets on me, right? It's just follow me around. That's not what the picture is. Radaf is pursue. It's overtake. It's aggressive. You see what the picture is? The picture is this. Oftentimes, Radaf is translated as hunt down. Hunt down and overtake. That means God's goodness and mercy is going to hunt you down and overtake you. It's going to come upon you. If you watch football, imagine a very slow football player picking up a, 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 the football and kind of lumbering toward the goal line, and you got two super fast guys coming after him. They're not following him and letting him score a touchdown, are they? They're pursuing him, and they're going to overtake him, and they're going to tackle him, right? That's a picture of God's goodness and mercy toward us. The goodness and mercy of God is hunting us down. His love and goodness and mercy are coming after us, and they're not going to stop. That's who our God is, his goodness and mercy and love. They're going to be on you. 
okay? Right beside you, as the song says. So when we see all this, when we behold the love of our God, one of the things that happens is we're changed. We're just transformed. This is 2 Corinthians 3.18. says, as we behold the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed. We're changed. So the overflowing love of the triune God, when his goodness and mercy and love hunts you down, it comes upon you, it changes you. And as God's people, I'm convinced our number one priority, our primary job is to constantly behold and be captivated by the love and goodness and mercy of our triune God, to behold him, to see how loving and beautiful he is. And I want us to have eyes to see this too. This goes along with creation. I want us to have eyes to see that the entire universe is an overflow of the love of God. The love of God among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The whole universe is a reflection of God's love. I want us to have eyes to see that the whole world, the beauty, love, relationships, all the beautiful things that we see, they're all reflections of the triune's triune God's love and goodness. Cornelius Plantinga said this. He said, ultimate joy comes not from a lover or a landscape or a home, but through them. He said, that, he said all the wonderful things in our lives, he said, they, listen to this, they point to what is higher up and further back. Being a Christian means having eyes to see this, that in back of every beautiful and lovely and joyful thing on earth, behind it is the love and goodness of God. And when we see love and beauty and goodness here on earth, what we're really seeing is God's love shining through. If you, we've got a picture I took outside of my neighborhood. It's a tree with a sunset behind it, okay? The, the tree may be beautiful, right? The trees are beautiful. But what's really stunning is the brightness of the sunlight coming through it. So if you imagine the sunlight is the love of God coming through the tree, and it's just glorious. And that's what I see in my brothers and sisters in Christ. I see the love of God shining through, the glory of God through you. He's in back of, but he is shining through us. And I want us to have eyes to see his love shining through us. When we love one another, when we worship him, the trees are beautiful, but what's really stunning is the light of the love of Christ shining through us. The sunlight, the love of our triune God. Dane Ortland in his book on Jonathan Edwards said this. Think about this. He says, the way to cultivate joy in God's people is not to talk about joy, but to talk about God. I love this. He says, if a New York park guide wants to help tourists feel awe at Niagara Falls, he doesn't give a lecture on awe. He shows them the falls. If a Christian leader wants believers to feel joy in Christ, he doesn't mainly tell them about joy. He shows them Christ. Knowing Christ means seeing all of life in a new way with new glasses. Listen, every taste of beauty in this world, from the roar of waterfalls to the chatter of birds to the richness of true friendship is a drop from the ocean of divine love and beauty. Every pleasure is an arrow pointing back to the triune God. And I can't help but think about the resurrection life to come. If the beauty and joy and the love of God that we experience in this life, that's like a dropper full. And we're going to experience an ocean in the resurrection life to come. Can you imagine? 
As I said, I think our number one priority is to constantly behold the love and goodness and glory of our triune God, to behold him, to truly see how loving and beautiful and glorious the Trinity is, how he's abounding with self-giving love. That's our priority. Because when that happens, when we see God's abounding love, his extravagant mercy, all that, when we see this, a number of things happen. One, we want to live for him. We want to worship him. We want to live lives pleasing to him. True, Two, when we truly understand God's overflowing goodness and love, we want to tell others about him. We want to be a part of his mission, as I said. We want to join the triune God in the expansion of his love as it abounds in the gospel of Jesus. As his kingdom and love expands and abounds to others, we want to be a part of this. And what a privilege that God allows us to be a part of this. By proclaiming the gospel and loving people and being the church, by showing people what it really means to be followers of Christ. And we show compassion for the lost and the weak and the hurting. We do that. God's kingdom goes forth. And all of this is an, is an expression of God's overflowing love for us. So that's why I'm preaching on the Trinity in this, in this series on Christianity and culture. Because I think if you understand the Trinity, you, have, you, have, you begin to have some understanding of the abounding love of God. And what that does, it, it fuels devotion. It fuels prayer. It fuels evangelism. It fuels love. It fuels missions. The abounding goodness and love of the triune God as we constantly behold God in all his glory and goodness and love. When we understand just how loving and amazing and self-giving our God is and we rejoice in who he is, this provides fuel for us to love God more and live for him and to reach out to a culture that is in desperate need of the Lord. I'm going to close with this. I'm going to say this. If you don't know the love of the Trinity... Just know this, that the triune God, he knows what's deep in your heart. He knows everything. He knows the dirtiness of what you've kept hidden. He knows the things you're ashamed of. He knows it all. In fact, he knows you better than you know yourself. And you may believe because of this dirtiness and shameful stuff in my life, I'm beyond God's grace. I'm beyond God's love. I'm too far gone. You may think that. Don't think that. Don't think that. The true and living God, the triune God, as I said, his essential nature is love. And he loves showing mercy. He loves forgiving. He's the God who overflows and abounds in love. And he's reaching out to you now. He loves showing mercy. I'm going to close with, another, with a quote from Michael Reeves, and we're done. He says this, If there's any coldness in you, any unconfessed sin, instead of trying to cover it up and hide it from Christ, why not hold it out to him? Let Jesus prove himself to you right now that he's a glorious Savior. Experience for yourself that this God is a gracious Savior and he loves saving broken, messed up failures like you and me. And when you see that's how loving and good our God is, and then you think, if he really loves me, not the outer mask, but me, if there's more power in his grace than there is in my sin, what a God, what a God. Here is a God more delightful and satisfying than anything else the world offers. Here is a God worth celebrating before all the world. And I say amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we love you and praise you. Father, we are so thankful that you are so gracious to us. We thank you, Father, that you are self-giving. You sent your son to die in our place. Lord Jesus, you are self-giving. You laid down your life for us. 
Father and Son, you sent the Holy Spirit to us. Holy Spirit, you are self-giving. You come upon us in love and give us spiritual life. And my prayer is for our church, for these folks, that they would constantly, all of us would constantly see just how loving and gracious you are in creation. Pray we would have eyes to see that in our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would have eyes to see your love and glory shining through. Give us eyes to see that, Lord. Help us. Help us not to think like the secular world thinks, that it's just all material. No, God, you are the light behind it. You are the love behind it all. And I pray you'd help us to see that. Lord, we love you and praise you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for being here with us now. Be glorified, Lord. Draw people to yourself. If there's anybody here who doesn't know your love, who hasn't confessed sin and repented and turned to you, I pray that you'd break into their stony hearts now and allow them to see just how loving and glorious you are. Praise you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name.